From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, editor at large of the Wall Street Journal. Thanks very much for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe if you're not already at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and elsewhere. This week, as Donald Trump's battle with the FBI and the Justice Department reaches a new intensity over the search of his Mar-a-Lago resort three weeks ago, I'm speaking with legal scholar and former Trump defender Alan Dershowitz. Now, Professor Dershowitz is a constitutional lawyer and former professor of law at Harvard University. He was part of Donald Trump's defense team during the former president's first impeachment trial in 2020, though he points out that he's not a political supporter of Trump, in fact, describing himself as a Democrat and having voted for the president's opponents in the past. Professor Dershowitz has been a prominent figure in many criminal and constitutional cases over the years, and he's never been afraid to embrace controversy or indeed what some would deem even notorious causes and defendants. Among those he's defended have been O.J. Simpson and perhaps most famously Jeffrey Epstein. He's recently said he's become the latest victim of cancel culture as a result of his sometimes controversial actions, saying he's been shunned by polite society. He's the author of many books, the latest of which is The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. And Alan Dershowitz joins me now. Alan, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. I've been shunned by impolite society, not (laughs) polite society. And not only have I been shunned, but the library in Chilmark has refused to allow me to speak after inviting me year after year. They initially did not carry any of the books I wrote since the time I defended the Constitution on behalf of Trump. And when the library starts restricting free speech, we know we have a problem. Well, we might get in. I hope we've got time to get into a little bit of some of those troubles and some of the reasons you have become apparently a pariah to, as you say, members of impolite society and maybe some members of polite society. But let's get straight on to this question of Trump now and his continuing battle with the FBI and the Justice Department. The very latest news overnight, we're recording this Wednesday morning, the latest news overnight Tuesday night was a late filing on Tuesday from the Justice Department in response to a motion from former President Trump, who wants the appointment of a special master to review the documents. The Justice Department responded to that with a very lengthy and detailed account of its investigation and indeed of the uh, timeline of the investigation that's been going on over these documents that President Trump is alleged to have taken, according to the Justice Department, perhaps unlawfully. And Alan, let me start by asking you this. So again, this latest motion said last night that, and I quote the Wall Street Journal's reporting here today, the efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation of documents at the former president. Mar-a-Lago home months before FBI agents searched the Florida state. Court filing late Tuesday objecting to Mr. Trump's proposal laid out the government's most detailed timeline yet and it said that there was likely evidence of obstruction by the president. What do you make of it and what do you make of this fight that's going on? Well, first of all, let's talk about the motion. The motion that is the basis for this dispute is a motion to have an independent, non-Justice Department official review the possible lawyer-client privilege material that was seized pursuant to a search warrant. There are two things that are not in dispute. One, they seized some material that is subject to lawyer-client privilege. And number two, Justice Department officials have already reviewed that. That's wrong. When a lawyer and a client get together, and I know I've done this, what, a thousand times in my career, you make a promise that nobody will ever know what we spoke about. Certainly the government will never know it. And yet the government claims, and they've been claiming for years, and I've been complaining about it for years, that they're entitled to have people in the Justice Department called the Taint Team reviewing all these lawyer-client privileged secrets and deciding which are privileged, which are not, turning over the ones that are not privileged to the prosecuting team, but keeping secret 
the ones that are privileged from the prosecuting team. Let me just throw out this hypothetical. Let's assume that this taint team, these are prosecutors who have lunch with the prosecutors who are trying the case on a regular basis. Let's assume that this taint team discovers a letter or an email that is clearly covered by lawyer-client privilege. It starts out by saying, lawyer-client privilege, this is a confidential communication. And in it, there is a smoking gun, or there is very, very juicy material about Donald Trump, which isn't criminal, but which could destroy his career. Does anybody in the United States actually believe that that material would remain totally secret and with a wink and a nod, its content wouldn't be communicated to fellow Justice Department officials. Would anybody ever speak to a lawyer in confidence again if they knew that their conversation and communications would be reviewed by a Justice Department official? So I think it's a very easy call to say, as some judges have previously said, that an independent master, a former judge, a former president of a university, somebody who has no connection with the Justice Department, should be the one that is reviewing these privileged communications and the only one to read what may be privileged communications. And even the special master, as soon as he sees lawyer-client privilege, he should stop reading. And that should be the end of the matter. So I think that the government is going about this all wrong. As far as obstruction of justice is concerned, let the chips fall where they may. I am not a Trump defender. I am a defender of the Constitution and the rule of law. If there is evidence of obstruction of justice and it was legally obtained and it's not covered by lawyer, client, or executive privilege, my God, there should be a prosecution. I have no question about that. I haven't seen that so far in the unredacted affidavit but if there is such evidence, the investigation should go forward. Obstruction of justice is a very serious charge. So what do you make of the Justice Department's response then to the Trump motion? Is this this long document, again, which, as I said, lays out a kind of a timeline, essentially, of the government's investigation, makes these allegations about obstruction of justice, makes quite dramatically, I'm actually including rather unusually, a photograph, I think, of some of the documents that have been recovered so far, mm -hmm. with top secret sort of splashed all over them. Is this a smokescreen? Is it a sort of, is it political? Is it for public consumption? Is it likely to have a dispositive effect on the judge? Or do you think the judge is actually going to side with Trump and say, actually, for the reasons you've said, these very concerning issues of lawyer-client privilege, that actually these documents do need to be reviewed by special master before the Justice Department is allowed to get their hands on them? Well, it could cut both ways. If there is actual evidence of fraud, and if some of the lawyer-client conversations contained proof of fraud, there may be exceptions to the lawyer-client privilege. But what the government is doing is cherry-picking what they want the public to see. They're redacting what they don't want the public to see, and some of the redactions may be fair, the names of agents, names of cooperating witnesses, but some of the redactions may be designed just to present a negative case against Trump without including the positive materials, if there are any positive materials. The question is really who you trust. Trust but verify, as Reagan said. That's always been my philosophy over life. My job is not to trust the government. My job is to challenge the government at every turn and to make sure that it dots its I's and crosses its T's and operates within the rule of law and under the Constitution. And we can't trust the Justice Department to guard itself. Who will guard the guardians goes back to Roman times, and it's reflected in our Constitution by our system of checks and balances. 
No department of government goes unchecked, not the FBI and not the Justice Department. Does that lack of trust in the Justice Department, which I think a lot of people, especially listening to this podcast, will share, and let's be honest, we've plenty of reasons for the mistrust that we've seen over the last four or five years with regard to the way the Justice Department has behaved. Does that apply to the broader case? I want to step back here and look at the broader case of the investigation here, which of course was initiated by the National Archives and Records Office over this dispute, which began, I mean, immediately President Trump left office, over which records he was allowed to keep. So stepping back from the specific issues that have risen from these recent filings and motions, do they have a case there for pursuing the former president in this way? Yes, they do. But remember, as the chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals once said, prosecutors can persuade a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. If it's in Washington, D.C., it could be a tuna sandwich. The grand juries or the juries in the District of Columbia are so one-sided. Remember, 91% or something of people in the district voted against Trump. So yes, they have enough to start an investigation, but I think to go beyond an investigation, you have to satisfy two standards, particularly if you're going after, and I'm not emphasizing the fact that he's a former president, I'm emphasizing the fact that he's a future potential presidential candidate against the incumbent president. That's the key. When you're going after the current incumbent president's political opponent in an election, it has to pass two standards. One, the Richard Nixon standard, and the other, the Hillary Clinton standard. The Richard Nixon standard says you don't indict a former president, and he wasn't even a future president, but a former president, unless you have bipartisan support, unless there's a widespread consensus, unless Republican leaders also agree that there's a basis for indictment. That standard hasn't yet been met. The second standard, and the one most relevant to your question, is the Hillary Clinton standard. There's an old great prayer in Jewish Passover, and it's Manishtana. Why is this night different from every other night? And the question here is, why is this case different from Hillary Clinton's case? She had material on her home server. It ended up on Wiener's computer, opposing real dangers of being released. The government has a burden of demonstrating that this case was far, far more serious. Now, if the obstruction case holds up, that may satisfy both standards. After all, Nixon was guilty of obstruction of justice, and the evidence there was overwhelming and clear. If the evidence here becomes overwhelming and clear, then the Nixon standard might be satisfied. And the same thing would be true of the Clinton standard because there was no claim of obstruction of justice there. She was cooperative. Let me be clear what's not obstruction of justice. And that is when the subpoena was issued, the lawyers fought it and they fought it very hard and they should fight it. I would have done the same thing if one of my clients was subpoenaed. So having a fight about a subpoena is not obstruction of justice, but destroying documents, obviously, that are under subpoena does constitute obstruction of justice. Of course, there were claims that that happened in the Hillary Clinton case as well. And I don't know enough about that case to validate that. But certainly the right wing media have talked a lot about destroying so many thousands of this and whitewashing that. I think that has to be looked at because that standard also has to be met before a future presidential candidate is subject to criminal prosecution. It was a dictator in Central and South America who once said, for my friends, everything, for my enemies, the law. And you can't apply the law 
to your enemies when they're running against you politically unless the case is overwhelming and clear. Well, I don't want to dig too deeply into the various standards, or you might say on the bipartisan standard, the, the Richard Nixon standard. I mean, these days we live in an age of partisanship, much sure. worse than it was in the 1970s, to sort of extend your ham sandwich analogy. You probably couldn't find, you know, if the Republican Party described, said something was a ham sandwich, the Democrats would say it was a tuna sandwich, and they would never agree. So that one is kind of hard to achieve, I think it's fair to say. And I think most people would accept that on the Hillary Clinton standard. Here's the tricky thing is, if you have to demonstrate that what the president's alleged potential breach of the law, you have to demonstrate that he is somehow jeopardizing national security or indeed just in breach of the Presidential Records Act or whatever else it is. You do have to, to show your hand, do you? Where you say, you know, does the Justice Department actually have to say, rather than issuing us this affidavit that we saw with, you know, this heavily redacted affidavit, do they actually have to say, well, actually, these are examples, obviously without giving specifics, but these are examples of the kinds of highly delicate national security information. Do you think they need to do that to make the case? Well, you've asked a very, very good question. Defense lawyers have come up with a strategy called gray mail, in which what they say to the government is, if you want to prosecute our guy on classified or secret information, you have to disclose the classified or secret information under the Sixth Amendment. We have a right to confront it and to contradict it. And the government says, no, 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 no. We don't want to disclose the classified information. That's why we brought this lawsuit. And a statute was passed and court decisions have been rendered trying to strike an appropriate balance between the defendant's Sixth Amendment rights to confront evidence against him and the government's legitimate power to keep certain material classified. So it's the beginning of a long process. There is this defense that has been made by some. I don't know if it's been formally made by the Trump team, but some Trump friendly lawyers have made it. The president is the ultimate arbiter of classification in the United States. Obviously, as the head of the executive branch, what he declares to be classified is classified, and what he declares to be not unclassified is presumably declassified. So there are arguments about how exactly that declassification process works. Does he formally have to you know, issue a, a memorandum, a statement, or whatever, a formal declaration of declassification? Or can he just, by his very act of taking a box <laughs> out of the White House and shipping it down to Mar-a-Lago, does that, in effect, represent a de facto declassification. And therefore, is that the defense that Trump can say, I declassified these documents? It surely will be a defense. I have no doubt about that. And it's partially a legal defense and partially a factual defense. Let's start with the factual. It's clear that if the legal opinion is that the president can declassify, he can only declassify when he was president. And so the argument would have to be that the very act on the last day in office on January 20th before noon of sending the boxes away constituted an act of declassification. I don't think that would necessarily wash. Look, the law is not only terribly unclear on this, it's terribly wrong. The president should not have the independent authority to classify and declassify privately. It is alleged, and I don't know this to be the case, but I've heard it, that President Bush, in the middle of a meeting in which certain material came up, announced that, okay, I'm going to declassify that right now so we can continue to have this conversation. There, of course, there was evidence of that. I don't think it has to be in writing, but the president, if he's going to declassify, it has to be while he's president. He cannot declassify retroactively after he gets a subpoena. So this will be largely an issue of fact. Is there a memorandum in the files? Are there witnesses? It's a defense. Is it a strong defense? 
It depends on the evidence. What about the issue of how sensitive these documents may be? That, that even if he had declassified them, there yeah. is the argument that the government has a legitimate interest, that the Biden administration, the continuing government, has a continuing interest in securing documents that could have vital national security implications. It could be, I mean, again, we don't know what's in these documents. It could be anything from, you know, Christmas cards from Kim Jong-un to names and places of intelligence agents, yeah. you know, inside the Chinese government, things like that. We don't know. We're behind the veil of ignorance. But supposing it were the latter, supposing there were documents in Mar-a-Lago there, you know, in among the tchotchkes and everything else that do have intelligence information that is vital to the national security of America, of the United States. Is that something that they would say, look, irrespective of the president's rights to declassify, this is not a secure place. You know Mar-a-Lago, Alan, as well as anybody. It's not a secure place for secrets that are so vital of the security of the United States. Well, first of all, there is not a complete veil of ignorance. We have dozens of years of experience with the government claiming that material is dangerous to the national security. I was one of the lawyers in the Pentagon Papers case. I represented Senator Mike Gravel, who read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. When that case was argued in front of the Supreme Court, the Solicitor General of the United States, the former dean of the Harvard Law School, Erwin Griswold, represented to the Supreme Court that if the Pentagon Papers were allowed to be published by the New York Times and the Washington Post, it would cause tremendous damage to the national security of the United States. The Pentagon Papers were published, and as far as I know, there was no damage to the national security. This has happened over and over and over and over again. The government cries wolf when it comes to national security. The vast majority of classified material is classified to protect the personal and political interests of the people who are classifying, not the national security interests of the United States. And I would think that the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, would be at the forefront of arguing against overclassification. And they have in certain cases, but not so much in other cases. So I do think that we have to look with suspicion and doubt on government's claims of high levels of national security. Now, it may be that there is, and if there was material of national security, the way to go after it, because there was no urgency, if there was an urgency, the government would have gotten a search warrant in February, and they would have acted on the search warrant the day they got it last month. They didn't do that. They waited a couple of days. The way to go is to subpoena the material. And that way, if you enforce the subpoena, the judge says, bring the boxes in tomorrow. At that point, the boxes are out of the control of Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago. They're in the control of the court. Then a special master could be appointed to go through all the materials, see what's classified, see what's declassified, see what's lawyer-client privilege, see what's executive privilege, and the process would be orderly. But instead, they issued a search warrant in which they grabbed everything, including lawyer-client privileged materials, and according to reports at least, they went into Mrs. Trump's closet. It was overbroad. And so, yes, I take seriously claims of national security, but I have my own suspicion as to whether the government cries wolf too often when it comes to claims of national security. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with constitutional scholar Alan Dershowitz on Donald Trump and the Justice Department, but also on the wider political climate in the United States these days. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. 
And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Alan Dershowitz about Donald Trump and his battle with the Justice Department. It's a bit of a digression here, but I'll let you have at it because you mentioned, you know, the Pentagon Papers. We've seen a pretty remarkable inversion, haven't we, with the media in the last sort of, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years or whatever, when back in the 60s, the 70s with the Pentagon Papers and Watergate, the newspaper reporter's kind of stance was to be deeply sceptical of the intelligence state and the law enforcement and the security state. And But there are a lot of reporters who now seem to adopt a position of kind of deference and indeed dare I say, kind of, you know, regard themselves as sort of vehicles for the intelligence state and for law enforcement right. onto the public. You make that point very, very well. The current media does not pass the shoe on the other foot test. Would they be saying the same thing if this were an investigation of President Hillary Clinton or even now of President Biden? Take, for example, the Espionage Act of 1917, the worst civil liberty statute passed in the 20th century, and according to many, the second worst civil liberty statute ever passed after the Alien and Sedition Acts. The New York Times, Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU has been railing against the Espionage Act of 1917. Under it, people were prosecuted who were liberal icons, uh, Eugene V. Debs, uh, Emma Goldman, Dr. Spock, Suddenly, it has become a favorite tool of the hard left and the left-wing media. They want to expand it. They want to make it even more overarching and broad. So what we're seeing is incredible hypocrisy, a failure of the shoe on the other foot test, a different standard for Trump than for other people. And by the way, it's not a Republican-Democrat divide. It's an anti-Trump, pro-Trump divide. Now, I'm one of the few people, I'm anti-Trump. But I put the Constitution way before any of my partisan interests. And I'm going to stick with the same approach I've taken for 60 years to the Espionage Act of 1917, to overclassification. I'm just not going to change my standards. And the reason I had to write my book, The Price of Principle, is it's because I haven't changed my standards that I have been attacked, that the library uh, has not allowed me to speak, that it won't carry my books, that old friends won't talk to me. It's because I haven't changed my standards. They want me to change my standards like the New York Times have. They want me to say Trump is different. If the object is to get Trump, the Constitution be damned, the First Amendment be damned, the Fourth Amendment be damned, the Sixth Amendment be damned, get Trump. That is McCarthyism. I experienced McCarthyism in the 1950s. In that case, people said, get the communists. It doesn't matter what the cost is. Forget about the Constitution. In those days, it was Republicans saying that. Today, it's Democrats saying it. Just ask you, what is it about Trump that has caused this? I mean, again, you know, his detractors would say, well, it's because he does things, you know, that are at minimum highly unorthodox, uh, contrary to the norms of constitutional behavior. And by the way, we don't need to get into here like challenging the result of the election, although that clearly is an important uh, issue. But, you know, from the start, he has a kind of, you know, fast and loose approach to the Constitution and to the truth and all this kind of stuff. His detractors would say that. I mean, his defenders perhaps would say it's just because he represents such a radical change and a radical threat to the quote-unquote deep state and the establishment. What's your sense of why it is that he seems to have attracted this level of probrium, and in particular to the point, as you say, where reporters will go to extraordinary lengths, including sitting sort of deferentially and uncritically listening to 
Trump's opponents and critics in the government. What do you think it is? It's largely Trump's fault. Trump has violated the norms of governance. Trump has uh, done things that no president ought to do. You say, let's not talk about the claim that he won the election. That's central. That was a fake claim. That was a dangerous, dangerous attack on our Constitution. It's utterly unjustifiable, and it should make everybody uh, be very concerned about Trump. And I'm not here to defend any of that. I'm here to say that no matter how bad Trump has been, the ends do not justify the means, and you cannot go after him on unconstitutional grounds. Let's remember what communism was in the 1950s. China had gone to the communists, Cuba, Eastern Europe. Khrushchev had said, we'll bury you. There was a great danger of communism. It was a serious danger. It was way, way overstated, but the people on the right were genuinely afraid, and they said, it's more important to stop communism than to defend the Constitution. People are saying the same thing now. I can tell you, when Larry David confronted me on the porch of the Chilmark store and called me disgusting because I had patted Mike Pompeo on the back congratulating my former student for what he had done in the Middle East, when Larry David confronted me on the porch, he really meant it. It was as if he was talking to Adolf Hitler's chief assistant because I had defended President Trump. The veins in his forehead bulged. If you gave him a lie detector test, he would say, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to America. So I understand that, but I don't approve of even that justifying trashing the Constitution as Larry David and others want me to do. I won't do it. Yeah, you quoted recently the famous line from A Man for All Seasons where Richard Rich says he cut down the last law in England to get after the devil and Thomas More reproaches him and I think it's a very good lesson. Back to the case, the particular case of these Mar-a-Lago documents. Again, not to take sides here, but one of the things that, again, those people who may have your skepticism about a lot of what's been gone on with regard to Trump say is, well, look, if the archives office and if they do have these legitimate concerns and they are trying to recover these documents, they've been in these negotiations with Trump and Trump's lawyer for 18 months now. They've recovered some of them. You know, there's been some cooperation from Trump's people, maybe not enough, according to the government. But they've been trying to do this. You know, they've got to a point, they do seem to have got to an impasse where this latest filing that Trump people were telling them there's no more documents and in fact were documents and, you know, all of this stuff. What other recourse did they have? Very simple. You go to court immediately and you enforce the subpoena. You get the judge to issue an order demanding that Trump and his counsel turn all those boxes over now, within an hour. You can even enforce the subpoena by sending marshals to the place to make sure that the subpoena is enforced. The difference is the government doesn't get to look inside the boxes without the need for somebody independently to go through them and to decide what's privileged, what's not privileged, what's classified, what's not classified. Even Garland said in his statement that the Justice Department's policy is not to use a search warrant unless there's no other less intrusive reasonable alternative. There was a simple reasonable alternative here. Enforce the subpoena. They didn't want to do that because subpoenas are not nearly as intrusive as search warrants. You couldn't get a subpoena to search Mrs. Trump's closet. Perhaps you couldn't get a subpoena to search the locked safe. 
You couldn't get a subpoena to look at lawyer-client privilege material through a taint team. So the government gets a tremendous tactical advantage by using a search warrant, but there was an alternative, and they failed to use it. So my view is that there was probable cause for getting a search warrant. Don't blame Judge Reinhardt. There was probable cause, but search warrants are given out as easily as Halloween candy. The fault is with the Justice Department for seeking a search warrant. The same thing is true of an indictment. It would be easy for the government now to get an indictment based simply on the fact that there's classified or material that's supposed to be in the archives in the possession of the former president. They could get an indictment, but they should not seek one unless the criteria that I've laid out, the Nixon-Clinton criteria, are met. So there's an enormous difference between what you can do and what you should do. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Where does this go, Alan? Do you think there is going to be a, an indictment, there's going to be an actual prosecution? Before yesterday, I thought no. But with the latest filing and claims of obstruction of justice, I think the evidence is now tilting a little bit more toward the possibility of an indictment. If they can meet the Nixon standard, and you're right, by the way, the partisanship has grown great, but there are leaders of the Republican Party who, if there was a clear case of obstruction of justice, a clear case of destruction of documents with no justification, I think there are Republican leaders who would say enough's enough. He's he's crossed that threshold. And what's the chart? Is it obstruction of justice? Is it some offenses related to the Presidential Records Act? It wouldn't be the Presidential Records Act. Uh, You know, that would not satisfy the Clinton standards. It wouldn't satisfy the Berger standard, Sandy Berger. You can't use laws for the first time against a man who's about to run against your incumbent president. It has to be standard laws that have been enforced for many, many years against many people of both parties. That's why obstruction of justice is so important. If that can be proved, that would satisfy the standards. And this would be obstruction of justice related to his demurral, his refusal to hand over the... No, that wouldn't be enough. His refusal wouldn't be enough. That's not obstruction. You can deal with that through a subpoena. What would be obstruction is destroying documents, bribing. What Nixon did, he obstructed justice in the clearest sense of the word, offering bribes. There was no doubt about that. There would have to be a high level of willful and deliberate obstruction of justice for that charge to be brought. And to be clear, you think they will make that charge? I think it's tilted toward an indictment with the claims of obstruction of justice, that without the claims of obstruction of justice, I don't think they had any possible case for indictment. If they can make out a case for obstruction of justice, it then tilts toward the possibility of an indictment. I'd like to talk very briefly about January 6th. I mean, there was some speculation early on in this process that maybe the government was actually kind of fishing to try and find some documents that might help them making a case that Donald Trump, whatever laws he may have broken in regard to the post-election kind of imbroglio. Do you think that, I mean, we've obviously seen you know, the Congressional Committee, the Congressional Investigation has gone on. There's going to be more. We know there's going to be more hearings. They seem to be, you know, unclear about whether they're going to sort of allege that Trump broke the law, recommend to the Justice Department that they bring a prosecution. And we've got these various other cases, of course, with the Georgia case in particular. What's your yep. sense of where all that is going in terms of Trump's potential legal jeopardy? Well, first, there's an enormous difference between doing the wrong thing and being criminally indicted. Trump did the wrong thing. He should never have made that speech. On January 6th, it was constitutionally protected, but so are the Nazis marching through Skokie or communists 
He should not have made that speech. It was a provocation. Yes, he used the words patriotically and peacefully, but if you look at the whole speech in context, it should not have been made. But it was constitutionally protected. It was not incitement. It was advocacy under the leading cases in the Supreme Court. Again, as usual, Trump's enemies are overstating the situation. Take, for example, my former colleague Lawrence Tribe, who on CNN announced that he thought that President Trump should be indicted for the attempted murder, the attempted murder of Vice President Pence. Now, you know, statements like that are so overblown that they hurt the credibility of the side making them. The same thing was true of the Congressional Committee. Foolishly, the Congressional Committee did not include any pro-Trump supporters. Two of them were proposed, Pelosi turned them down, and then the Republicans foolishly refused to put substitutes in, and the committee, therefore, there were no pro-Trump subpoena power, no pro-Trump cross-examination, and so the committee itself lacked tremendous credibility. So I don't think there will be a January 6th indictments. I'm not sure. I'm now representing one of the young men, a law school student, who went to peacefully and patriotically protest and went into the Capitol and left when he was told to leave after having essentially been welcomed by waves by the police. And so there are many, many such cases pending, but putting the blame, criminal blame, on the president for that will be a bridge too far. Finally, Alan, I do want to talk a little bit about the kind of the broader climate that we have. You described your yeah. encounter with Larry David and the fact that you're barred from a library. Fair to say, Alan, you would acknowledge this. You know, you, you have been a controversial figure and you've of embraced course. some controversial, indeed, even notorious causes. I'm Jeffrey Epstein, perhaps among the most striking. I've never been in any way canceled for any of those things. You know, people said you're like John Adams. You know, you represented the Boston Massacre. You've represented the most heinous and the most seriously accused uh, criminal. I've never, ever been cancelled for that. It's an essential part of our democracy that people, however heinous the crimes they may be accused of, are entitled to the best defense they can get, right? Yeah. I'll give you an example. Tomorrow's my 84th birthday. For my 80th birthday, we had a party on the deck of our Chilmark house in which close to 100 people, neighbors, attended. This is after I defended Epstein. This is after I defended many of the other people. It was the defense of Donald Trump which turned everything around, which turned friends into enemies. The Trump factor is the most significant factor in creating the intolerant climate that we now have in the United States. People cannot speak to each other. Trump can't get the best lawyers in the country to represent him because people have told me we don't want to be Dershowitz. We don't want to have happen to us and our family. My wife, for example, was working out in a gym. A woman walked in and said, I can't be in the same room with Alan Dershowitz's wife. I was seated next to Caroline Kennedy at a dinner party, and she said, if I knew you had been invited, I wouldn't have come, suggesting that she couldn't be in the same room with me. This is the woman who's the ambassador to Australia, has to negotiate with foreign leaders. She can't be in the same room with somebody because he defended Donald Trump under the Constitution. That's the climate that I write about in my book, The Price of Principle, I have tried very hard to stick to the same principles I've had for nearly 60 years, fighting McCarthyism, fighting denial of due process, fighting for free speech for everybody, not for me, but not for thee. And for that, I've paid a heavy price. My wife has paid a heavy price. 
My children have paid a heavy price, but most important, the people who want to hear me at the library in Chilmark and other places that I've been canceled have no ability to hear me. That violates their First Amendment rights as well as mine. I guess, you know, I'm to play devil's advocate a little bit here. I mean, President Biden, where President Biden's about to give this uh, big speech, we understand Thursday evening, by the time many listeners hear this, they'll have already heard what he's got to say. But but President Biden has been talking about MAGA faction, obviously Donald Trump by extension, as semi-fascist. And I suppose this is why people feel so strong. I mean, you, you can like, disagree with that, like, I don't even know what it means, semi-fascist. But, you know, there are people who think, quite serious people, and you, you know, you encounter them all the time, who think that Trump represents a kind of unique fascistic threat to democracy and that this is calls for something way beyond the kind of the normal you know politesse of constitutional and democratic procedures he's a unique missile aimed at our democratic institutions i agree with you completely and let's remember too that there's a totalitarian mindset uh, among some trump supporters but there is a totalitarian mindset among woke people on the hard left some of the leading academics today are calling for the end of the Constitution, the end of free speech, the end of due process, saying these are patriarchal, supremacist notions written into a Constitution that was drafted by slave owners. So we're seeing totalitarian instincts on both ends of the spectrum. And I've always said that the hard, hard right is closer to the hard, hard left than either of them are to the true conservatives and true liberals. I think of myself as a true libertarian liberal who opposes any kind of totalitarian mindset. And I don't like to use the word fascist. I don't think president should use that word because it connotes Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. And we're not anywhere close to any of that, but we're in trouble. We're in deep trouble because the hard left and the hard right have both shown intolerance, and for good reason. If you think you have the truth with a capital T, why do you need free speech? Why do you need dissent? Why do you need due process? We know who's guilty and who's innocent. Why do you need trials? That's the end of democracy, and it's coming as much from the left as from the right, and it's more dangerous from the left. Let me tell you why. The right is largely the past. The left is the future. The hard left people are teaching and propagandizing our college students today, people who 10 years from now will be the heads of corporations, the heads of media, people will be in Congress, they'll be running for president of the United States in 20 years, and today they're being propagandized by professors and by fellow students who do not believe in free speech and due process and believe that the ends justify the means. That's why the hard left today is actually more dangerous than the hard right. And I wish President Biden would spend some time attacking people who vote for him on the hard left, because that's the obligation of every decent person. You attack the people who are closest to you. As a liberal, as a person who has been identified with the left, I spend much more time attacking the left than I do attacking the right. And I think President Biden should do the same thing. Alan Dershowitz, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will agree with you. Alan Dershowitz, thanks very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please do join us again next week for another deep dive into the issues that are driving our world. Thank you and goodbye. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.